podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people? That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hey everybody, welcome to Smart People Podcast. That sounded like a game show. I'm Chris Stemp. And I'm John Rojas. This is a good one. This is a good one. I want all of you paleo diet proponents out there to listen up. What What do you look so... What? Don't do that. What? Don't do what? They're a feisty bunch. I know, and they could probably beat me up. But Yeah, with their CrossFit. No, it's like it's so funny. I say this in the interview, but I say, if... Your paleo diet is based on this perfect time in history where we were adapted exactly to our environment. Why did we ever change? Because we built cars. If we're not supposed to eat all this stuff, why has it been one of the things that have allowed us to evolve into the future? Why are we living longer now than ever before? That's that's evolution. Yeah. We've We've gotten smarter and we have evolved and our brains have gotten bigger. Anyways, this week is awesome. We interview Marlene Zuck. She is the author of the new book. It just came out, Paleo Fantasy, What Evolution Really Tells Us About Sex, Diet, and How We Live. It's just really cool because it gets you to think about all these things that we have recently determined our fact. Like, oh, we should be like our ancestors, like the cavemen. And she's not saying really, you know, one thing's bad. It's just yeah. getting you to think about it in the correct way. And she's an expert on it. She knows her stuff down pat. And she says she's not the diet police. You know, everybody's different. She says that different diets and different processes work for different people in different ways. Right. And, you know, some people benefit from paleo. Some people do not benefit from paleo. Sure. I mean, again, it's it's the foundation. It's the hallmark of this show. You're definitely going to learn some cool cool stuff this episode. So we're going to get into Marlene Zuck here. Just wanted to make sure you guys do all the standard things we ask for. Primarily subscribe to the podcast because we have the coolest stuff recently and coming up. And that's your number one thing. So subscribe, leave us a rating. And if you buy anything on Amazon, you know to go through our link at Smart People Podcast. John, you got anything else for them? Anything interesting? I don't want to sell them anything else today. No, we're it's getting some episode. new equipment. I'm excited about that. Yeah, we we'll are. be setting that up soon. Yeah, we Hopefully are. Hopefully it'll raise the sound bar just a little bit higher. You can't raise this bar. Marlene Zuck is a professor of ecology, evolution, and behavior at the University of Minnesota. The last book she wrote was called Sex on Six Legs. Make sure you stay all the way to the end of this interview because she gives a great lead in into that. I'm going to be sure to put that on my Kindle as soon as I have some time to read about insect sex. Here is Marlene Zuck. Thank you so much for being on the show. I, I really appreciate it. I'm really I, I'm really looking forward to talking to you. So Paleo Fantasy hasn't even come out yet, right? It's just out. I've, I've, I have the copy sitting in front of me right now. Wow. Um, so if you and I'm pretty sure I asked for you guys to get um, a, an advanced copy. So it, it should be arriving any moment. Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah, I'm really pumped. I just that's why I want to talk to you. The whole paleo thing is going nuts, especially. I mean, I don't know generationally, but I know kind of the millennials and stuff, people our age, like they're, they're crazy with their diets and all this stuff. So I'm sure it was a very, was it a fun book to write? 
It was a huge amount of fun, although I do have to say that I, I, in some ways I wasn't expecting the diet part of it to get picked up on so much because I'm, as I keep telling everybody, really, I'm, I'm not the diet police. I'm not interested in telling people what to eat. That isn't why I wrote the book. I got interested in the paleo diet stuff because to me it represents so much about the way people think about evolution and make it and the way they make it personal. So, so that was it more than that. I got, you know, evangelical about, Oh no, people should be eating something else. Um, so, so I really, you know, a lot of those people get really, um, very committed to their perspective about what you should be eating. (laughs) Yes. Yes, they do. But yeah, I mean, I read an article that you wrote and it, it kind of talked a lot about the paleo fantasy and I noticed how little, was concentrated on diet. And I I like that. I mean, we all have heard of the paleo diet at this point, but I think very, very few of us have taken the time to sit back and think about why that makes sense, why that even gained momentum in the first place. Well, I I think it's obvious that people start thinking about, you know, why do we want to do things the way we want to do them or what makes sense as a way to live and for a long time, people think, oh, it makes sense to think about the way our ancestors did things. Um, there's you know, a long history to that. So it's not really that surprising that people would think about our really distant ancestors and imagine, well, if we can live the way our really distant ancestors lived, that's going to be a more authentic way of life or it's going to be a better way to approach our modern world. And so, so there's a lot of that which you know is a as a first principle you know no one can argue with that sure that does make sense as a way to, as a way to approach it another way that people come at it though is this sense of the modern world being really out of sync with the way people are sort of supposed to be if you can you know go along with the idea that people are supposed to be a certain way at all hmm. and so the idea of oh we have this mythic past where everybody was in harmony with their environment appeals to us i think from you know, a couple of different sources. It's funny when I thought about it, I thought, okay, because I wanted to believe this paleo fantasy. It does make sense off the, you know, off the top. But I wondered if we were a perfect being at some point in the past, when was that? And why did we ever change? At what point did, did, were we perfectly made for our environment? And once I thought about that, it didn't really make any sense at all. Well, exactly. And so that's why I got interested in this idea about a perfect past being emblematic of the way people often misunderstand evolution. And I think that if you don't really reflect very hard on it, it's easy to imagine that, oh, all organisms somehow started out kind of in this goo, you know, and we were all misshapen or, you know, sort of kind of only roughly hewn, you know, the way you imagine somebody making a first approximation of something they're going to make out of clay or carve out of wood. And then gradually as the misshapen things interact with their environment, they get more and more and more uh, suited to it. And so it's kind of like the woodcarver is making more and more details on them. And then eventually you get to this point where you go, yay, I've made Pinocchio or, well, (laughs) whatever it is you've made. Um, And so it's now perfect and it's now exactly what you had in mind um, or it's, you know, Michelangelo's David or it's probably a better image than Pinocchio. Um, And, you know, so it's it's exactly what you had in mind. And so now you can stop because that's that's what was happening. But, of course, that's maybe a way to talk about the creative process, but it's not a very good way to talk about evolution. What is the best way to think about evolution in terms of when we look at it? Because I know 
everyone, almost everyone I know thinks of evolution as this extremely long drawn out process. And, and it makes sense, but is that the right way to look at it? Well, so there's two things in there. One is about it being a long drawn out process. And the other one is, which can sometimes be true. And obviously, you know, the dinosaurs were a really long time ago. And one of the reasons it's hard for us to get our minds around the way evolution works and the way the history of life on Earth has been is that it's hard to think about time happening over that long a period. So that's certainly true. But the other thing that's kind of contained in there that I think is is where we sometimes go astray is this idea that it's a process with an end point. And that's what's wrong with this idea about thinking about making Pinocchio or Michelangelo's David, that you get to a point and you go, okay, it's got all the parts and now we're done. Whereas before, when it, you know, didn't have the nose or it didn't have the, you know, whatever other part, it wasn't okay. But evolution doesn't work like that. Organisms are continually evolving and changing, but they're not getting to somewhere where they can then heave this sigh of relief and go, you know, even metaphorically, phew, done with that, we're now perfectly adapted to our environment and we can get on to other things like, well, I don't know what those other things would be, but the, the point being that people often think teleologically that evolution has some kind of end point that we're trying to get to, and it doesn't. I always get in arguments with people that believe in creationism versus evolution, and I always hear the same thing from creationists that say, if we evolved from a monkey, why are there still monkeys there? But when, <laughs> yeah. you, when you try to explain evolution and how, if you look at it graphically, it almost looks like a family tree. You know, things branched off from each other and those that didn't work out went away and those that did continued on and that kind of stuff. And it, it just boggles my mind that the concept of evolution and what it actually is isn't really, I, mean, I don't want to say it isn't really taught that often, but I, I come across so many people who don't actually understand it. I mean, do you have any idea why the process of evolution is so misunderstood? Um, part of it, I think, is this, un, it's, it's difficult to imagine that there's this process that has resulted in a lot of sort of jury-rigged and imperfect solutions. So, I mean, like you said, most people look at it as, oh, something works out and then it stays or it doesn't work out and then it goes away. But, of course, it's much more complicated than that because you could certainly argue that the human body did not really work out very well. I mean, there's all these things about it that are just jury-rigged and put together from what was there before. Our skeletons are not very well suited for walking bipedally, for instance. But, you know, so does that mean we didn't work out? Well, we're still here. That's kind of the only definition that matters from the standpoint of evolution. So it's not... Some, and again, back to this business of it's not like we're or any other organism is evolving, 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 getting better and better and better. And then, OK, we're there. We can stop. There's lots and lots of bits and pieces that are trade offs that are holdovers from genes that we inherited from ancestors going as far back as, you know, things we have in common with bacteria. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean, you know, because you're not starting fresh with every single organism. And that's what evolution is, is that life is connected. Life is related. Now, in doing this research about evolution and all this, did you ever come across any super interesting things such as why we still have hair, for example, or why, why we haven't evolved out of, like, why do men have nipples? Like, random, <laughs> you know what I mean? 
There, but see, there's tons of things like that. The minute you start looking at the human genome or indeed any other genome of any organism, you realize that there's a lot of stuff in there that doesn't all work along to produce a perfect product. And the, uh, a very famous um, scientist, uh, Francois Jacob, said a number of years ago that uh, uh, nature is a tinkerer and not an engineer. Uh, and he was talking about evolution. And the idea being that if you're an engineer, you want to build something, you say, okay, here are the parts that are going to work the best, and I'm going to go and get those parts, and I'm going to put them together, and I'm going to make you know, a bridge, or I'm going to build a building, or what have you. But with evolution, you're starting with what you've got lying around in the garage. And so all you can put together is from the parts that you already have. And that might mean that you're using a tennis ball for something that, you know, a ball bearing would really be better, but you don't have a ball bearing. And so you've got to stick a tennis ball in there and it's really too big. But, <laughs> you, you know, no one's giving you a ball bearing. It just wasn't in there. And so you're putting everything together from the parts you've already got. And that's a much better way to think about evolution happening than to think about starting from first principles and assembling something from scratch, because nothing's assembled from scratch. We all carry in us these vestiges of our ancestors. And, you know, hair is an example, but, you know, we've got genes that we share with bacteria. We've got genes that we share with hamsters and geraniums and all kinds of other organisms. I like that. That's a cool way of thinking about it. And then I wanted to ask you, you know, when we think about evolution and we think about this paleo fantasy, we imagine a time, right? Even if you if you go to a website, what is paleo fantasy? What's a paleo diet? It's how our cavemen, you know, ancestors would eat. What, yeah. what time? When is that? I, I'm just curious, like, like how long? Of, <laughs> I think it depends on who yeah. you talk to. Okay. So, you know, some people will think about, um, I, well, a lot of people fixate on a time um, more than 10,000 years ago because 10,000 years ago is when uh, agriculture was adopted and that clearly produced an enormous number of changes for human beings. And so a lot of times people think about, well, let's discuss the period, you know, sometime maybe, you know, longer than 10,000 years ago, but while there was the genus Homo, which of course is still an enormously long period of time, or do you just want to talk about when there was Homo sapiens? And this is one of the reasons why it's such a slippery concept, is if you want to talk about, well, what were we like? Well, it depends, and it depends what part of the globe you were talking about and what people were eating. And, and I should hasten to point out that I, I do understand a lot of people who are following a paleo diet get this. It's not like it's news to them that there were people in Africa who were eating different things, you know, 50,000 years ago than people who were in Northern Europe. I mean, they, I, I, I get that they understand that. But at the same time, it points to this difficulty in really coming up with an ideal that you want to try and adhere to. I'm glad you brought up agriculture because I would be doing our listeners a disservice if we didn't discuss the paleo diet a little bit. Sure. And specifically, things like celiac disease is a much bigger problem now than it was recent. You know, in recent years, I would imagine. I'm not an expert, but and and diabetes and things like that. Is that because we are unable to digest these things? I mean, is that a, an example of something we need to evolve through? Yes and no. So certainly 
you can argue that there are things that are difficult for the human body to digest or difficult for it to deal with. Um, or, or you can say that there are diseases, the so-called diseases of civilization like hypertension uh, and diabetes uh, and to some extent obesity that seem to come with a modern Western way of life. Absolutely, if you don't have a modern Western diet, your chances of having those diseases are markedly decreased. Uh, and some of that may come from unexpected sources. We, we already know that eating diets high in salt and sugar seem like they're not great for us. Eating lots of processed foods might not be great for us. But, well, two things. One is that that doesn't mean that if we lived off of wild game and never ate starches, that that would automatically be the solution to all those problems. And another one is that there's lots of other changes that have happened that are much less visible. So, for example, the bacteria that are associated with not just our food, but every other part of our environment has changed drastically since, well, even in, since the Industrial Revolution, even the last few hundred years. What's now being called our microbiome, the bacteria that live inside of us, are very, very different bacteria than they were a little while ago. Does that mean we need to go back to paleobacteria? We couldn't possibly. I don't see how we could even manage that. But going back to this question of whether you know things like diabetes are a sign that we're straying too far from our evolutionarily best suited diet, there's a grain of truth to that, if, you, if using the word grain is not too you know, sort of weird <laughs> under these circumstances, uh, in that it does seem like for people with certain types of genes, they're going to be prone to what's called insulin resistance if they have diets that have a lot of calorie-dense food and a lot of simple sugars. But that's different than saying that our bodies evolved solely to eat foods that were around before agriculture. That definitely makes sense. Now, in terms of sugar, I'm interested in that because I crave it like crazy. I mean, I can literally eat bags of sugar if I wanted to. Um, not saying I wouldn't <laughs> die. But yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he does it too. <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> but is, is it fair to say that that is part of our evolution in, in that our craving for sugar comes from a time when energy sources were scarce and they were a quick burst? Is that a fair... Assumption? Sure. Okay. And it may, it makes sense to think about you know our ancestors and that if you were someone who sought out sweet foods, then at the time what that would probably mean is you were going to be eating fruit or you were maybe going to be eating honey. But the chances of you being able to OD on it the way right. you can in modern times was pretty minimal. So there's no reason for selection to have removed the desire to have sweet foods. Interestingly. Um, Fiber is really good for you, but no one ever craves fiber. Like you never have people who just wake up in the morning and like, oh, my God, I have to eat bran or I'm just going to you know, explode. Um, I mean, you can learn certainly to you know, think that, oh, yes, fiber is good for you. But, but no one's going to argue that a love, a, you know, love of fiber is, is something that's inherent in our being. And if you think about it, that makes sense, too, because, of course, fiber is readily available in most unprocessed foods. And so people who are eating a diet like that of most contemporary foragers or hunter-gatherers or whatever you want to call them, are going to get enormous amounts of fiber, probably like four times what the average American is eating. You don't need to go out of your way to get it because you're getting it anyway. And so selection is not going to favor someone who is really into fiber because it's just not important. Hmm. And what about 
this I think this will probably be my last question on diet. I didn't want to, but it's just interesting. <laughs> I didn't want to dive in, but well, and, and I no, and I do get it that this this is what what people right are interested in, and I know that the paleo stuff does call up a lot of you know images of, of you know what people want to eat. I, I I just feel like I really don't want to get in the position of like I said being the diet police sure. and telling people what they should and shouldn't eat because there's lots of people who will come back to this you know oh you can't talk about evolution this way because I switched to a paleo diet and I feel much better and you know like more power to you I you know that's this is not what I'm here for <laughs> right well I feel like if you eat a paleo diet it's almost difficult to eat too many calories, in which case, of course, you're going to feel better and lose weight. So it's one of those things. But I want to ask you about milk, because is milk good for us or not? I'd like to just end the debate. Sure. <laughs> um, so it, good for you is, of course, a relative term. True. But um, one of the things that people who are really interested in paleo diets will talk about is the absolutely true fact that humans are the only mammal that continue to drink milk after weaning. And that, of course, drinking milk when you're a baby is a characteristic of mammals. It's why we're called mammals. <laughs> but And it is indeed unusual for humans to drink, to drink milk later. But it turns out, and this is one of the really coolest stories of rapid evolution, or contemporary evolution as it's called, that humans have changed genetically just in the last five to 7,000 years since people started keeping cattle. And our genes have changed. We have evolved. And we've evolved in a time period that when you think about that broad sweep of evolution of the dinosaurs and things happening hundreds of millions of years ago seems like just the blink of an eye. But in fact, the genes that allow us to break down milk sugar, so um, or that allow us to produce an enzyme called lactase that can break down milk sugar, have changed. And so now there's lots of groups of people on the planet that can digest milk. And so it doesn't give them digestive problems the way it gives other people digestive problems. If you have the gene for what's called lactase persistence, you can digest milk happily and it won't, it won't bother you. If, however, you're from people whose ancestors didn't herd cattle, then you may not have a lactase persistence gene and hence milk will give you problems uh, and you will need to do something in order to get that lactose broken down. And so there's nothing more virtuous about being lactose tolerant or lactose intolerant and there's nothing that seems like, oh well, it's just more like our past and so therefore it should be a good thing. It's a great example of how evolution works under some circumstances when in this case, people were herding cattle and the ability to digest milk was a real advantage. So people that could do it left more offspring who carried their genes. And that's what I was going to say. I mean, if if it came down to the people who could digest milk were the only ones getting enough nutrients and they survived, then that means it's a good evolutionary thing, not, hey, we didn't have it 10,000 years ago. You know, it's just not it's not a valid argument. And so all of this has to be taken in the context of what your environment is like. So if you're, an environment, if you're in an environment where it's useful, then you'll leave more copies of your genes. If you're not, then you won't and it won't make any difference. Exactly. So, so you don't think, you know, it's not like it's inherently a good thing or inherently not a good thing. It just depends on what part of the world you're living in. And one of the coolest things about the story, so, so the story of how lactase persistence evolved is, I think, sort of the poster child for how evolution can be really fast and we now understand a lot of the details about it and, and it's really cool how, the, how all of this works. Um, the other part of it that's fun is that there's two 
well, there's several groups of people that can digest milk, but two of the major ones are Northern Europeans and then um, some uh, people whose ancestors are from uh, uh, parts of Africa, both of whom herded cattle. And the interesting thing is that they both have the ability to digest lactose, but they use it doing different genes. Um, and so it's like you, you ended up with selection that just went through different pathways with the same outcome. And we now understand what those genes are, which I think is a really amazing accomplishment of modern science. That is. That is amazing. Now, going to something that the only topic that could possibly be more interesting than food is sex. And, of course. <laughs> and um, as we mentioned, you know, we haven't had a chance to read the book yet because it's just coming out. But the word sex is in the title, and I'm obviously interested. So if you could give us a little secret or hint into the book, what, what does evolution tell us about sex? So one of the things that people will talk about is, well, what was our historical or ancestral family like, and have we diverged from that to a point where it's bad for us or bad for our kids or bad for the way we choose our partners? And here again, I think there's a lot more variability in the way people evolved to live than some of us want to give credit for. So it's not like there was this single paleo family where people kind of envision it like this version of, I don't know, Ozzie and Harriet wearing skins where there was a mom and a dad and their little, you know, cave babies and they lived in their own cave and the dad went out and hunted mammoths or whatever it was he did and brought the mammoth meat home and the mom stayed home and took care of the kids and that was the way it worked. And so if we somehow deviate from this nuclear ancestral family, we'll be badly off, you know, we're, we're going to be bad off. But in fact, increasing evidence is suggesting that humans evolved under circumstances where we were cooperatively raising children. So that, for example, kids had not just their mother or even their mother and their father, but maybe their mother, their father, and another relative or even someone else in a group who they were only very distantly related to. So this idea that mothers should be able to take care of their kids by themselves for their whole upbringing is probably not part of our ancestral past. Now, what about monogamy? Because I've always used, I don't want to say that excuse, but, you know, <laughs> hey, why do you look at other women or why, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, we're all mammals here. that We just want to spread our seed and we're just... Horny guys. Is that a, is that a, um, I, I, I'm really not about to give you advice about how you should say this, but, but saying really, you know, I, it's possible that saying that to a prospective partner is not the best way to win her over. Um, I just saying, um, but yeah, you, you get two versions of this. One of them is that, uh, human beings are historically monogamous. One of them is that human beings are historically, uh, and so therefore the, you know, business of, you know, men wanting to stray is, is just a newfangled thing. Um, the other one is that, oh, well, just as you say, you know, we're mammals or we're animals or, you know, however far back you want to take it. <laughs> and so therefore, males are always going to benefit by spreading their seed. The problem with that is that it depends on, this, again, the environment in which species are evolving. And so human babies have huge, huge needs for being taken care of, like I was saying. They don't need just a mom. They often need more than that. And so imagine a species in which males mated with females and left and mated with females and left and mated with females and left. Yeah, there'd be a lot of sex going on, but 
it wouldn't really help from a standpoint of evolution because if those offspring can't survive, then you really haven't left any copies of your genes because you've had sex and then the kids die and you have sex and then the kids die. In a species like babies take an awful lot of what's called parental investment, fathers that don't stick around and that don't invest in their offspring are not going to end up winning out because we're, we're not like those animals in which the babies get either very minimal amounts of parental care or maybe if you think about animals other than mammals where, you know, the mother's laying eggs and then everybody goes away and the babies are left to fend for themselves. Those are circumstances where you might find a lot of mating with multiple partners, although in those cases the females are probably mating with multiple partners too. Hmm. But humans just don't have a situation in which having sex and then going away is going to yield very much, right? Because right. the babies are not going to make it. And so we have, a, we have a species in which a lot of investment by parents is going to be a good thing. Now, is there any evidence that it has to be the biological father? I mean, I can think of, you know, a couple situations, obviously step parents, but also, you know, there, there still exist communes. And if these people are, be, if these kids are being raised by, like you said, you know, multiple parents and then either other relatives or friends or whoever it may be, do those kids end up growing up okay or are they in the same situation as a fatherless or motherless child? Oh, people are hugely social and you can demonstrate this in lots of different cultures and, and we're very good at attending to each other's needs and lots and lots of us understand that babies take a lot of care and you know, you'll put in some investment into taking care of individuals in your social group, in your family group you're, that you're distantly related to and, and so forth. So no, no, it doesn't have to be the biological parents. But it's just from an evolutionary perspective, it makes sense that for your genes to get passed on, investing in the carriers of those genes makes good sense. So basically what you're saying is it's not a good excuse that we're mammals. <laughs> like I said, if you want to try that, you 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 go. How has that been working out for you? Just Why, just out of curiosity. You and the tens of thousands of people that hear this are the only ones that I've ever told. So, oh, okay, well, you know, I just just curious if you know that's if, they, if that works out for you as as a a reason for you know explaining your behavior that that would you know I mean that it's just a common thing you've heard. Lot, he right? won't let his girlfriend listen to this episode. Yeah. I'll just put it that way. I was just wondering. The last question I actually had, I know we're getting close on time here, but is how quickly can we evolve? And for example, technology has allowed us in less than the span of a generation to be subjected to you know higher levels and more quantity of information. And I'm wondering, is it possible that we are already evolving to digest this information? Is it, is it possible that one person has you know evolved to understand it quicker and be able to pay attention to more things at once or is that not even a reality so remember evolution is is all about the population it, you know individuals i mean we talk colloquially about you know oh you know so and so is more evolved this actually now harkens back to our conversation about your discussion with your girlfriend but we won't <laughs> go there um so you know you can t you can talk about that colloquially but in actual fact all evolution means is that the genes that are present in a population change, and they change for all kinds of reasons. So individual people don't evolve. It's just what's happening in a population or, you know, the gene pool as a whole. Having said that, 
Yeah, modern technology is going to make a big difference, I think, in how people leave genes into subsequent generations. It, it just doesn't mean that evolution stops. I quote an anthropologist whose name I now can't remember um, in the book, who, when she's asked, are, are humans still evolving, she just answers with, is everyone having the same number of children? And, of mm. course, the answer is no. And so if, you're leaving diff- if, if people are leaving different, copies, different numbers of copies of their genes in subsequent generations, then that means that the composition of the gene pool is going to change and evolution is going to happen. And there's lots of different selective pressures happening at once. So you can't point to one and saying, oh, yes, we're all moving in the direction of being better able to understand technology or better able to come up with new inventions or something like that. This stuff is, it's so fantastic. I, re- I can't wait to read your book. And I don't know if we told everybody the, in- the full title. It's Paleo Fantasy, What Evolution Really Tells Us About Sex, Diet, and How We Live. I'm really excited. What made you want to write on this specific topic? I mean, I know your career and what you teach and all that is kind of relevant. Did you just decide this is the thing for me to write about? So I got interested in rapid evolution because of research that I do on crickets. Uh, and so I know a lot, a lot of people think, oh, you mostly work on – if people really want the short version of my research, I always tell them I work on bug sex. Uh, and so <laughs> it turns out and, – and it turns out that bug sex is actually enormously relevant to paleo fantasy because in my research that I was doing on the insects – we found an instance of extremely rapid evolution. And then that got me thinking about how quickly evolution can happen. And that got me reading a lot of literature about rapid evolution in people as well as other living things. And then that got me thinking about how much, how little we appreciate the way evolution really works, that it's much more complicated and nuanced and interesting than this sort of turgid progression uh, that you always see in the cartoons of the, you know, fish that's kind of crawling on the land and becomes an amphibian and then the amphibian becomes a reptile and then the reptile becomes a mammal and then we end up with a person hunched over a computer. (laughs) And it's just, it's just a lot more interesting than that. I'm so glad that there's people out there that are interested in things like bug sex and the fact that we can... (laughs) We can, you know, garner so much information about ourselves and about humans from that. Like I would, ne- I'd never in my life have thought about bug sex. Right, not once. So, so, so one one of my standard lines is that uh, once you start thinking about this, you grow to realize that sex in insects is much more interesting than sex in people. What? How's that even possible? <laughs> we're we're done here. We can't like we, we could not pursue we can't pursue this, can we? But it's absolutely true. Oh. Human human beings just don't really have sex that's all that interesting compared to insects. Oh my gosh. We'll we'll leave everybody on that cliffhanger. Actually that's a <laughs> that's a good place to say, is there anywhere else that we can go personally, but in our listeners to learn more about kind of that aspect as well as paleo fantasy, do you have uh, like a blog or somewhere where you disseminate a lot of information? So my my last book was actually called Sex on Six Legs, um, which uh, talks about the that basic point about sex and insects. Well, it's it's actually about more than sex and insects. It's about insects in general. But but yes, um, so that that just came out uh, a couple of years ago. Oh, great. Fantastic. Well, again, thank you so much for being on the show. This was fantastic. I have no doubt that your book is going to do amazing because we talk to a lot of authors and this is, I promise you, this is a really interesting subject. 
I'm really glad you said so. Thanks <laughs> no, a lot. Absolutely. So, um, again, thank you and have a good night. All right. You too. All right. Bye-bye. For those of you that stuck around for this awesome intro, we salute you. Head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Check out what we've got going on. Subscribe to our newsletter. Email us. Do something cool. It's we don't, funny. you know, I, I, I don't even know what to say anymore. I was going to say, hit us up, man. Hit us up. I got the coolest email today from a listener, and he just was bashing so- something that we did. Not bashing it, but he, he made really good points about an episode we recently had. And I was like, this is awesome. This is what I'm talking about. You know, people took the time to say, I like your show. Here's what sucked. I get back to him and I say, you're right. So hit us up, subscribe for our newsletter and we can kind of let you know what's going on. We don't send out hardly any. We haven't sent any out in a while, but we will be. So I got for you. Smart Beal Podcast. See you guys next week. Bye.